We look at marriage in the law and the prophets, divorce in the law and the prophets, and then on the Wednesday after that we'll pause and pause for breath and then carry on. So what is the relevance of this topic? I thought of some reasons why it's relevant. Number one, in terms of discipleship, because the commission of the Christian gospel is to make disciples. That's to say to not only teach people the gospel, but to teach them how to live in a way that befits the gospel. Uh, So the whole question of how people should be disciples in the realm of marriage, in the realm of divorce and sexual ethics generally, is a task that is before us. And uh, as society is less and less, as we might say, traditional, then it's more and more of an issue how we advise people and counsel people and move them into discipleship. Number two, it's relevant because of the witness to the world. The Church of Jesus Christ is meant to exhibit holiness, uh, whatever that looks like in practice, uh, and Christian ethics. And the, the Church is meant to be different and to show that it's different to the world without God. And so that should be included in uh, the way we handle this subject. Uh, The purity and existence of the church as the church. The the church is meant to be different. I'll turn up the bulb, actually. Uh, And we might, uh, without any huge great stretches of the imagination, be, uh, be pondering who would we have as a church members given where they've come from and what sort of situations they're from and maybe what sort of situations they're in so we need to have some clear thinking on that and then I think perhaps in a very poignant way the individual consciences of believers because people might be sitting in a chair like you're sitting and thinking in my marital life in my history I've messed things up so badly and I've forfeited the Lord's blessing and I'll never find the Lord's blessing again and I think that would be a terrible thing for people to be sitting and thinking when Jesus Christ is a saviour of grace and uh, yet for sure there might be things that people need to put right in their lives on the other hand there might be things that people are thinking they've got wrong when actually the, the Bible makes a provision for that. And uh, so the consciences of believers, we need to be very thoughtful about people's consciences. And I've put as a fifth relevance, Christian insight and input into framing laws for the nation. Now I've put that in brackets because I don't honestly think that we're any longer in a position in society where Christians have any particular right to say do things in a Christian way because we're right I just don't think that that holds very much water these days so I put that one in brackets so there's five, five thoughts on relevance to this, of this topic would anybody like to suggest any other any, have I missed anything out on that yes if we do things, if we're made by God and we do things according to the maker's instructions, things will be better. Having said that, we're conscious that we live in a society where people 
where in some cases it's a matter of damage limitation. Uh, and um, the Old Testament is actually conscious of that. So, okay, we'll, we'll move on. So let me next give a little bit of a, what's the word, um, caveat, a little bit of a, uh, a warning to say, what we look at in the Old Testament, we're not to just directly say, right, that's in the Bible, we should do that. So we are Christians and we live in the kingdom of Christ and there is a distinction from the law of Moses. Jesus makes this distinction. The, the Bible is conscious of this distinction. Uh, so uh, please let, can we look at Matthew chapter 5, <coughs> verse 17. So we don't actually need the authorised version for this one. Uh, so 5.17. And perhaps, Maria, could you hand, that to, hand the microphone to Martin? And Martin could read chapter... Matthew 5:17 to us. It just needs switching on underneath if it isn't already. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Thank you very much. Very interesting thing that Jesus says about the way that he makes the transition from the law and the prophets, the law of Moses and the prophets as they look forward, and what Jesus brings. He does not abolish he doesn't say it's all rubbish he doesn't say that's irrelevant he doesn't abolish but he fulfills and I think we will find that he fulfills and this will include things like deepening so he'll take the ideas of the of the law and deepen them for the kingdom he might refocus them for the kingdom so just as an example of that in the prophets if somebody was a heretic I'm putting this in very in the law rather if somebody was a heretic I'm putting this uh, sort of in very uh, rough language uh, you would stone them to death in the New Testament if there's somebody in the church who's a heretic um, unless you're living in the time of the Reformation where you, what, would, what would we normally expect to do with somebody in the church who was not keeping to the gospel what would we do with them would we stone them we would we would uh, we would expel them from the church we would say you don't belong here and we would where in the old testament it would be on the focus of actually expelling them by killing them in the new testament we would expel them by taking them off the membership role so there's a there is a refocusing of things in as we go from the old testament to the new testament and there's an intensification I, I can't think no I probably can't think but mostly Jesus takes the things of the law and intensifies them I was just thinking of the food laws that he relaxes but other things as we move from the Old Testament and the New Testament there's a complex transition where Jesus says I have not abolished but fulfilled so 5 verse 27 and 28 could you read that for us please Martin chapter 5 verse 27 and 28 that's Matthew 5 27 and 28 you have heard that it was said do not commit adultery 
But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Thank you. So uh, you could argue that what Jesus does in that verse is to redefine adultery and move it from simply something external to the internal of the heart. So we're moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Number two, to rightly understand we need to hold together the progressive revelation because the Bible wasn't written all at once. It was written as the centuries went by. It's not saying that it went from being wrong to being right, but it was like a, a, a darkened room where you gradually switch on the lights and you can see more and more of what's already there. So it's important for us to realize that in creation, we have the origin, and that's certainly true about a, a relationship between man and woman. Then we have the fall, in which things go all wrong. As we go through uh, the book of Genesis, we have the patriarchs, the fathers, with their lives and the stories before the law. And we have the law of Moses. And then as we move on through the Bible, we have things like the, prof the prophets who take the law. They're still within the old covenant. They take the law and they apply it uh, and they project it forward. And we'll find something of that progression as we go through. And I'll just remind ourselves that without trying to make it complicated or any more complicated than it need be, it is good to meditate in the law of the Lord. And I hope that we can catch something of that goodness this evening. Here's another observation. Uh, they lived, the law and the prophets, they lived as one nation under God. The technical term is a theocracy. God rules. We live in a democracy in which the, the people are supposed to rule. You might not have known that. Um, they, live, they lived as one nation. So the, the politics was simple. We're all one nation. And the nation was a mixture of what we would nowadays call born-again people and those who are not born-again so the nation uh, included people who had new hearts like David and Moses and Daniel who had real faith and people who didn't. They were still Israelites. They were still within the covenant but they didn't have new hearts and the laws reflected that fact and Jesus will, uh, as we look at it later, will say Moses said that because of the hardness of your hearts that the people he was speaking to some of them at least had hard hearts unchanged hearts but in the New Testament uh, in principle at least all the people in the New Testament covenant are born again people so they lived as one nation a mixed up nation under God we live as many communities of born-again people in many different nations, in many different legal frameworks, in many different societies. Uh, and whereas they were under God, to, one ex to some, whatever extent, our nations uh, do not particularly serve Christ. Uh, and uh, um, if we're thinking of legislation for the nation at large, of course, we, we can't assume that people have any particular desire to obey God at all. And as we shall see, there are many other societal differences 
So as we read, as we find in a moment, the, the stories of Abraham, there was no such thing as the children going off to university. There was no such thing as uh, a woman um, going off to be a graphic designer in London. Uh, the, the way the economy worked was very much linked to being in a family and being provided for either by your father or by your husband. So that's a, a difference too. And let me give one other, no, a couple of other examples. In the Old Testament, the ideal, so the normal, print, the normal situation is marriage. And you, you, to be unmarried is, is, is thought of as unusual. And you could even go a bit further and say, within the covenant people, there is a pressure to have children. And you could even say that within the Old Testament, uh, there are certainly some stories in which it is a sinful thing not to have children. So the, the idea of having children is very much part of the way the Old Covenant works. Because the Old Covenant, the, the covenant where God took one nation and said to Abraham, these are your children, and I'm going to bless your children and your children's children and your children's children, and through your seed all the, uh, all the world will be blessed. That depends on having seed. It depends on having the next generation biologically. And that was the way God advanced his purposes. And so to not have children deliberately was, a, uh, was to reject God's purposes. And to be unmarried, and particularly to be incapable of having children, well, if it was a, a man, Leviticus 21.20, you needn't look that one up, but it, it says that a, a man who is incapable of having children would be excluded from worshipping God, from going into the temple. So uh, that's quite a different situation to the kingdom. And we can look at Matthew 19.12. The disciples are a bit shocked at this. So could Martin again please read for us, uh, I think, Matthew 19. 11 and 12. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs, because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Okay, so that's an interesting thing that... uh, in the Old Testament, to be incapable of producing children was something of a disgrace. But Jesus says, actually, in the New Testament, there are some who have made themselves that way or chosen that way for the kingdom, and that's an honorable thing. So there's a difference. Uh, Paul, you remember, Paul, the Apostle Paul, said, singleness has got many advantages, and it is not an unblessed state as it might have appeared in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament it's a wee bit different. And let me give you, oh, I think I've already said this. In the Law and the Prophets, 
Yes, in the Law and the Prophets, marriages are, we'll see this coming up, within, uh, usually within the tribe, definitely within the nation, for the genetic purposes of Abraham's seed being um, propagated down through history, and for religious purposes, because if you married somebody outside Israel, you were almost certainly marrying somebody who was an idolater, and somebody therefore who would almost certainly tempt you into worshipping their national god, which would be a disaster. So the whole, uh, one of the directions of the Old Testament is to say we want a nation to grow, we want more children, and we want to keep them worshipping the Lord. So there's that uh, purpose in the law and the prophets. But in the kingdom, there's no such um, fearfulness in the sense that there's, there's no sense that the, the, the New Testament says you've got to marry people from your own tribe. And it doesn't say you've got to marry people from your own nation. And it doesn't say you've got to marry people from your own racial group. Because the, the New Testament suddenly goes ballistically international. So all of those are things to say we must be careful not just to take a verse from the Old Testament and say, I read that directly, that applies to me, and I'll just do directly what it says without thinking carefully how it fits into the whole scheme of things moving forward. Is that okay? Okay. So let's try and get our heads round marriage in the law and the prophets. And the way, uh, rightly or wrongly, the way I chose to have a go at this was by looking at the main words. So the main words that we would look at, suppose we were looking into, you were looking this up in Google, trying to find out about marriage in um, European society, you would probably Google husband, wife, bride, Bridegroom, son in law, marriage, wedding, engagement, and you might even look at adultery. You look at those sorts of words and you begin to pick up, pick up a picture, particularly if you've looked up marriages or weddings. Find loads of stuff, wouldn't you, about um, wedding dresses, wedding venues, a lot of about wedding venues and um, or wedding presents and loads and loads of stuff and you, you pick up what happens in, in weddings. Right, so that's what I thought I would do with my concordance uh, looking up. So I started with husband. And I found there is no word in Hebrew for husband. See, there is no word in Hebrew which means husband. There is the word for man. Uh, there are a few words for man. One is Adam, which means man. Uh, one is Ish. And you could look this up if you had a strong concordance. It's word 0376. It's, I haven't put the statistics of how many times it's used, but it's translated in the, new, in, in the authorized version, man or men, 1,212 times. It's translated as one, so even in the authorised version, it wasn't always gender-specific in its translation. 
188 times, and husband, 69 times. We'll look at that in a moment. There is also a word. I should have warned you at the beginning, you won't like all of this. Anyway, I'll, I'll, uh, <coughs> there is also a word, Baal, and Baal as in the Canaanite god, Baal. If you go to the, I think we went to the museum in the Louvre and there were little statues of Baal there. Uh, this is the god that the Canaanites used to worship. And they called him Baal because Baal means Lord. And Lord is a, a noun. He is Lord. And it's, it can be used as a verb, to Lord, to bring somebody under your lordship or to be in a relationship of lordship. And the word Baal, <coughs> and when it's used of a human being, I think this is, is, tra- is translated by the authorised version 82 times. It is man, 25 times. It is translated owner, 14 times. And translated husband, 11 times. Interesting. Baal, yeah. Uh, yes, yep, yep. So how does, so if you, if you say there's a man, how can you tell whether he's married or not? Well, the answer is you'd say, he's her man. And it's the use of that possessive pronoun. You say, if, he, if he's her man, then they're married. See this again uh, this way, with wife. Wife. Any of you know French? Qu'est-ce que le mot pour le... What's the word for the... Uh, for the for the wife of uh, Monsieur somebody or other, la femme. And what's the word for woman? So interestingly, in French too, you can have the same word for woman and wife. And the difference is, c'est ma femme. It's my woman, meaning my wife. So when you bring it into a possessive, say it's my woman, then you're saying it's my wife. There's no word in Hebrew to differentiate between a woman and a wife. There is the word isha. Uh, Man is ish. Woman is isha. This is word 0802. It's used 779 times. You'd be pleased to know I didn't actually count them. It does tell me in the concordance how many times it's used. It's translated 323 times woman. 425 times wife and some other translation 10 times and here we have the same thing when it's possessive when it's to say my woman or his woman then it means wife let's look at Genesis 2 21 to 25 Genesis 2 21 to 25 I think we'll let Maria read this because otherwise she'll think I've given her the microphone under false pretenses. Genesis 2, 21 to 25. And I'd like you to notice where the translation will change from woman to wife. So Genesis 2, 21 to 25. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam 
and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord had, Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Thank you very much. So let me try and uncover what's going on in the original language so it says in verse 22 the Lord God made an isha out of the rib or the side he had taken out of the ish so out of the ish the man comes an isha and therefore a man an ish shall cleave to or be united to his isha and actually it changes the word for man in uh, verse 25 then Adam the man and his Isha were both naked and they felt no shame so you notice that woman has moved to wife although in Hebrew it's the same word but it's just changed the meaning because it's her and his isn't it the Ish, verse 25, and his Isha. So if it's his Isha, then it, we understand it to mean his wife. And in verse 6 of chapter 3, verse 6 of chapter 3, could you read that for us, Maria, please? And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Thank you. So the Isha, the woman, saw that the the woman or wife, saw that the fruit was good, and she gave it to her Ish, her man, and our translations say her husband, but what it actually says is her man. Get in, did you get the idea? Marry. Be a very helpful word to look up. There is no Hebrew word for marry. Let's sing something, shall we? <laughs> so we're looking at this word, which you think might, might yield a little bit more than... Uh, man and woman seemed to yield so there is no Hebrew word for marry imagine my disappointment as I look this up and find there are two main words and the first word is to take which I think is laka so the NIV says X married Y but the Hebrew says X took Y as Isha so now Maria, can you find Genesis eleven twenty nine? Abraham and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, 
And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. Okay. So I don't know whether you were tuned in when Maria started that sentence, because if you had the NIV, it says Abraham, Abraham and Nahor both married, which seems fair enough. But what Maria said, just read us that phrase again. Abraham, Abraham and Nahor took their, took, took them wives. Yeah. And this is characteristic. It's repeated. I went through about 70 references checking them, and they, they say the same thing. So-and-so took such and such as wife or took so and so to wife or um, whatever it is and if you look at Genesis 25 1 please could you read that for us no, let's, let, wait a minute don't read it until ah no I think even the even the author even the NIV will will agree on this so Maria Genesis then, 25 1 then again Abraham Abraham took a wife and her name was Keturah. Okay, there's the verb. Uh, NIV says took. He doesn't say married another wife, but it, it's what the Hebrew says. He took a wife. Interestingly, you see, in this is part of the thing where we're entitled to go carefully from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Abraham had multiple wives. So I don't want us to just say, oh, well, Abraham did that. It's in the Bible, so we could do that. I mean, that would not be a correct way of reading the Bible. And there are also other distinctions that are made. So Genesis 36, 12. This is an obscure reference. I don't think even put, and somebody with a really good memory for the Bible would be able to do this one from memory. Uh, Genesis 36, 12. Thank you, Maria. And Timnah was concubine to Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bare to Eliphaz Amalek. These were the sons of Adan, Adar, Esau's wife. Thank you. Interesting. Uh, so NIV says had a concubine named Timnah, the authorised version says was concubine so I think the took I, I've made a mistake in using the take word there because it's not in that is was concubine now what's a concubine I tried to do a bit of research on this it's I'm not sure whether I've got it pilagesh I think it's not doesn't sound like a proper Hebrew word it's got too many syllables in it <coughs> There's a suspicion that it comes from Greek. I'm not quite sure how that would work. Uh, there's a, a, another realm of study of what a concubine is. A concubine is somebody who's in a more or less permanent relationship, a woman with a man, and yet is of less status than a wife. Now, I don't really know how that works, but it's obviously a recognized thing because here she, it doesn't try to tell us that he was a, she was a wife. It says, no, she was a concubine. So I'm just going to pass that by. And, and now I'm going to come back to taking. And I'm going to say that others could be involved in taking. So Genesis 21, 21. Thank you, Maria. And we get back to that one. 
Genesis 21:21. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. Thank you. So if this is interesting, isn't it? His mother took him a wife. So it wasn't just that he went and took a wife, but his mother said, excuse me, I'll do this, and takes a wife for him. This is sort of the dream of mothers all over the world, isn't it? If only I could sort out my son by just taking a wife for him. Uh, uh, So this is, so other people could do this. And in Genesis 24, a servant is involved in taking a wife. The NIV said get, but it was the verb to take. So let's look at uh, Genesis 24. This is Abraham in his older years wanting a wife for his son Isaac. And so he gets his servant to travel all the way back to the tribal homeland to find a suitable wife. Now this is interesting because it's to do with marrying within the family, uh, the family who would have the same religious affiliation as oneself. And so could you read us 24.3, please, Maria? And I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. Yeah. So this servant has got this huge task of taking a wife for his, uh, for his master's son. So it's in there to, get, uh, to take an Isha. In verse 7 it says, uh, Abraham said, um, I've got that right Uh, end of verse 7 so that you can take a wife from my son from there Uh, verse 38 verse 38 verse 38 could you read that to us please Uh, verse 37 or 38 Maria and my master made made me swear saying thou shalt not take a wife to my son of the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but thou shalt go unto my father's house and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son. So into the same, same thing there. Uh, and verse 40, I think, says the same thing. So it's repeated time and time again. Uh, and we find another feature of uh, marriage, which is in verse 53. Could, uh, actually, verse 53 and verse 54. Could you read that for us, Maria? And the servant brought forth jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment and gave them to Rebekah. He gave also to her brother and to her mother precious things. Yep. And the next one, please. And they did eat and drink, he and the men that were with him, and tarried all night. And they rose up in the morning, okay. and he said, Sorry, yep, carry on. Send me away unto my master. Okay, so associated with this is the exchange of money. So we, would, we do find the payment in the, in the Old Testament, the payment of the bride's family for the loss of the bride, or in exchange for the bride. 
and so there's something of that going on there and we'll see that again later uh, and then if we come to the sort of fulfillment of it all in verse 66 uh, so verse 67 so she's been taken from her father's home brought back all the miles to the chap that she's going to marry to Isaac and this is what happens next so 66 67 please and the servant told Isaac all things that he had done and Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death thank you very much so that's that's the that's the marriage uh, she's taken uh, no she's she's taken from her father's house there's a, a, a feast there's an, a, an exchange of money and she's brought in to a new place to live into um, the tent of his mother Sarah who is deceased is she not uh, and the word marry is there but what it just says is she, she became Isha she became uh, wife and he loved her so uh, in, in all the things we've looked at this is the first time I think we've seen the word love interesting balance of thoughts isn't it it's not all about love at least in the, the text we've looked at but it, there is love and it's here and that's it so it's a taking bringing bringing it to a new place uh, and uh, that's the uh, she's now married she's now his Isha and he is now her Ish so let's look at the second word to marry which is not used so often and this is this word Baal which is to lord okay I should have said that you might not like all this uh, but this is a word translated marry to come into the relationship of having a lord or being protected by a lord so let's look at Deuteronomy 22 Deuteronomy 22 verse 22 if a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband then they shall both of them die both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. Okay, thank you very much. So that, that's, uh, uh, yep, that's what it says. NIV says sleeping with, well you said lying with, another man's wife, it, uh, it, it, um, we'll come back to that, it, the death penalty. Very interesting the very fierce uh, sense of a boundary that if it's another man's Isha that that, that boundary is fiercely, fiercely guarded so if somebody's found sleeping with uh, this woman or lying with this woman they both face the death penalty very, very strong and then there's some other provisions and I'll read these in verse 23 if a man happens to meet in town a virgin pledged to be married and there's a whole thing about what this betrothing means and he lies with her you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death the girl because she was in a town and did not scream for help 
and the man because he violated another man's wife. Is that what it says? Yeah, I should have looked that up a little bit more carefully. You must purge the evil from among you. So I thought this was an engaged girl, but I'll have to look that back up again. Uh, it is typical of the sort of wisdom of, uh, of the law of Moses. It's, it's, it's legislating for an unpleasant situation and saying, what do we make of it? Well, if it was in a town and she'd screamed, chances are somebody would have heard her. So if she didn't, we assume then that she didn't scream and they both face the death penalty. Verse 25 says, okay, this same thing happens in the country. If in the country a man happens to meet a girl pledged to be married uh, and rapes her, only the man who has done this shall die. Do nothing to the girl. She has committed no sin deserving death. The case is like that of someone who attacks and murders his neighbor. For the man found the girl out in the country, and though the betrothed girl screamed, there was no one to rescue her. So it's just the... um, the man who faces the death penalty. Verse 28, if a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her and they are discovered, he shall pay the girl's father 50 shekels of silver. So it's like the payment of a dowry. He must marry the girl for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. Very interesting provisions there. I mean, we try and look at it a little bit dispassionately notice here there is no possibility of divorce in this case there was provision for divorce in other cases but in this particular case there's no provision for divorce I'm sorry I haven't done that exactly correctly but let's come back to let's come back to the ver- verse 22 and of course what we were actually looking at was the word Baal verse 22 if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife if a man is found lying with an Isha lorded to a lord that's what it says in Hebrew she's Baaled to a Baal that's an interesting use why it suddenly goes into Baal there doesn't it she She's under the protection of, she's under the jurisdiction of another man. And this uh, third party has no business breaking into that, into that boundary. And we have the same thing in Genesis 20, verse 3. The reason we're looking at this is the use of the word Baal to mean to marry. But it also points out some other interesting things as well so this is Abraham who, whose wife Sarah was actually his half sister and he, when he went to different places because she was such an attractive woman he rather took the coward's way out and said that she's my sister he didn't own up to her being his wife in case somebody powerful thought that they would like to nick her and, and that she would become their wife and Abraham would f- end up being bumped off so it wasn't a very noble th- strategy for Abraham to, uh, to follow uh, Maria could you read us 20 verse 3 this is when Abraham stays with the pagan Abimelech but God came to Abimelech 
in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man, for the woman which thou hast taken, for, for she is a man's wife. Thank you. So notice the same thing there. And this is in a pagan situation. You are as good as dead. So the death penalty sort of applies to you because the woman you have taken... Now, he hadn't actually got as far as marrying her or having sexual relations with her, but the same phrase is there. She's a man's wife. Literally, she's lorded to a lord. And I find it interesting that 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 same phrase is used there. So we've got these two words for marry, to take, which we've seen, and to lord. And as we've gone past it, we notice how fiercely this idea guards the boundaries of marriage. And even though we say, well, there's no description of uh, how the marriage, you know, what, what form of words was said or anything like that, yet nevertheless, they had a very clear idea that somebody was or was not married. And when they were within that um, arrangement of marriage, the, the boundaries are fiercely, fiercely protected. And there's a death penalty for breaking it. And interestingly, that within that boundary of marriage, so Abraham had two wives within that boundary. So there's another, as I said before, we don't just copy the Old Testament and say um, we do exactly the same thing. But there's that strong boundary, and the relations within it are very strongly protected. And you see from the things about um, the uh, the rape uh, of the woman and so on that the idea of sex outside that boundary is also fiercely protected I, don't, I haven't proved that uh, properly but we, we do see it in passing well I will speed on now and it will become a little less coherent um, so I thought we'll at least look at the word wedding <laughs> there's no technical word for wedding either uh, and uh, the idea, in the, you know, you, f- you look in vain in the Old Testament to see the people of God saying, shall we have a registry office wedding or shall we have a church wedding because there just is no such thing. The nearest I could easily find for a blow-by-blow description of a wedding is in Genesis 29, verses 14 to 30, which is the wedding of Jacob <coughs> to the daughter of Laban, or in fact, to the daughters of Laban. Uh, Jacob is a shrewd, scheming chap. You probably wouldn't want to buy a used car from him. But Laban is even more shrewd and scheming, and you definitely wouldn't try and marry one of his daughters. So in Genesis 29, verse 14, after Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him just because you're a relative of mine should you work for me for nothing tell me what your wages should be now Laban had two daughters the name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel Leah had not quite sure of the translation weak eyes but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful Jacob loved Rachel and said I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter Rachel so you see there's a payment involved here And Laban says, it's better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her, which I think is such a wonderful expression, isn't it? The days just flew by because he loved her so much. And Jacob said to Laban, then Jacob said to Laban, verse 21, give me my wife, 
my time is completed, I want to go into her, go in, as in go into a tent that she's in, sort of. Um, so you see, the father is being asked to give the daughter. And so Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. So you have a feast. So it's marked in a sort of public way. When the evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When the morning came, there was Leah. Now, how, how did that work? Presumably they didn't have very good illumination in those days. And Jacob says, hold on, this wasn't what I agreed. I'm sure this is the wrong woman. What is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Well, actually, Jacob, you're quite a deceiver yourself. But anyway, Laban replied, Oh, it's not our custom to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's week. The word bridal isn't there in the original. And I'll give you the younger one also in return for another seven years. So you end up with two wives. Got to be a bargain. You have to pay for both of them. Seven years work for both. I've already had seven years work, so you can marry this one and have the, the next seven years you'll pay, pay it off Jacob did so he finished the week with Leah and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife Laban etc 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 it's very dysfunctional because the, this arrangement really doesn't work well at all but there are some features that I think we would recognize the father gives the, the woman is as it were taken from her father's tent into into Jacob's tent the people gather there is a bringing and a giving a transfer of guardianship from father's house to husband's house there is love there is a dowry uh, <clears throat> the only other thing I could came across about weddings was the clothing Isaiah 61.10 says 61.10 says as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest. Now he has arrayed me as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So that's Isaiah 61, 10. It's a little bit of a, um, a sort of a proverbial saying, isn't it? That the, the, the bride remembers the wonderful clothes that she wore, presumably on her wedding day, and you get the same sort of reference in Jeremiah 2.32. Does a maiden forget her jewellery or a bride her wedding ornaments? So that's the nearest I could get to a blow-by-blow wedding. There's a taking, a give, uh, sorry, a, a taking to wife, the father giving, uh, a moving from one almost from one tent to another tent. It's marked with a feast, sometimes as a payment. Do you remember that David said he was a bit embarrassed about marrying the, the daughter of Saul? Do you remember? He said, what can I pay? And you remember what, what the uh, payment was. It was indeed. Uh, so I move swiftly on and say, uh, bridegroom, it was used there. I looked up the word bridegroom and bride, and to my disappointment, the word bridegroom is exactly the same as the word son-in-law, and the word bride is the same word as daughter-in-law. So I suppose what it, the, the common factor being, this is a member of my family by marriage. 
So if you're a father, you say, he's a member of my family by marriage, he's my son-in-law. If you're the woman, you say, he's a member of my family by marriage, he's my bridegroom. And likewise, the other way around. And one other thing, uh, of these hundreds of examples of taking as a wife and scores of examples of being lauded and lauded, how many times do you think we find in the Old Testament that marriage is likened to a covenant? Definitely once, and I think only once. Um, could be, I might not have looked it up rightly, but um, and you can, if, you, if you're quick you can correct me, but it, it, might, it might then be twice. But interestingly, it's uh, certainly not hundreds of times. Malachi 2.14 says... Uh, the Lord is acting as witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her though she is your partner the wife of your marriage covenant so it says that once and have you got the Jeremiah reference um, for us oh, well I haven't started preparing it yet so it would be Jeremiah 31 wouldn't it Jeremiah 30, uh, 31, 31. Yes, it's, it, so here is a, a, a likening of God's relationship, God's covenant with Israel to the marriage relationship but I was really surprised at how little that that is said the idea of breaking the relationship with God being like adultery comes up quite a lot and there's a whole reference to um, what the authorised version would say whoredoms and whore uh, we would probably say prostitute and prostitution and that goes right the way through the Bible, starting quite early on. But still, the, the, the likening of marriage to a covenant is very, very sparing. So I'm looking at the clock and I'm thinking we've probably had enough. Um, you can ha Let's have a think about that by next time. And if you think, ah, there's something you didn't cover, something I was unsure of, we can try and do it next time. Please turn to Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. So Hosea is a later prophet, not back in the time of the law of Moses. Excuse me. <coughs> and he is conscious of the wrongness of adultery. But this is what the Lord reveals to him. And this is how the Lord speaks to him. So Hosea 3 verse 1, I'll read it. The Lord, well, I'll wait until everybody's found it, actually. Hosea 3, verse 1. The Lord said to me, that's to the prophet, Go, show your love to your wife again, although she is loved by another, 
and is an adulteress. Although she's broken the rules, though she's unfaithful, she's messed everything up. Show your love to her again. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. And I would like to finish on that note because it's so beautiful. We've described how marriage ought to work and some of the sort of structures and boundaries of it. But here is the Lord saying, well, my people mess up the structures and boundaries of my relationship with them. And the best way for you to understand it is of the love that this husband, this wronged husband, shows to his wife. He goes back and loves her again, even though she's been unfaithful to him. And the Lord says, you love her because that's the way I love my people. Isn't that beautiful? That's the way I love my people. Let's close then by singing 909.